1 Kings 19, beginning in verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked. And behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenants, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword and I. Even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Let's pray. O Lord, your word is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we ask that you would use your word to nourish, restore, and give us joy in you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we began a two-part sermon dealing with depression. And it all comes from this chapter here in 1 Kings 19, where after God's mighty work through Elijah on Mount Carmel, he then flees for his life from Queen Jezebel. And last week, we talked about two aspects of dealing with discouragement. And I'm using those terms interchangeably, discouragement, depression, despair. I know depression has a meaning in the medical world, but I'm kind of using them broadly. But last week, we first considered that while the Bible calls us to consider all joy when we encounter trials... The joy is not the trial itself. We don't consider that a joy, but what it produces in us. The joy is not in the suffering, but God, but what God does with it. And then we show that 
Christians not only can, but Christians should weep at times. We showed that the Psalms have unending tears or tell of unending tears, darkness, and the feeling of abandonment from God. Jesus said in Luke 6.25, Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. God made a good world, but due to sin and his curse, we should weep. We weep over our sin. We weep when we look at dysfunctional homes. We weep as we look at oppressive ideologies or debilitating sickness, and we weep at death. And yet Jesus shows while we shall mourn now, he says also, you who mourn, you shall be comforted. Weeping and mourning do not have the final word, for when Jesus returns, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Thus we said we have hope in the midst of darkness, for Jesus will return. And yet for some we noted that it's not just a moment of discouragement or moment of despair, but it's ongoing. It's been months, maybe years of ongoing feelings of despair. And we began to answer whether it's short or long, how do Christians respond to this? And we said we really need to do, we really need to care the way God cares for us, the way God made us. And God made us with bodies, minds, and spirits. And thus we said we need to care for the body, we need to renew the mind, and we need to revive the spirit. And last week we focused on that first one, caring for the body. In regards to the body, Psalm 103 verse 14 says, For God knows our frame, he remembers that we are but dust. You know, except for the breath of God upon us, we would be dust. And except for his sustaining us, we would still return to dust. And yet God sustains this dust, not in some mystical way, but through the normal things of eating, sleeping, exercising. And so we need to care for God's body, we said, by looking at the ABZs, the active lifestyle. It's not just exercise, though, it's that, but that God made us to be fruitful and multiply. That we're to be productive, and if you live a life doing nothing, it will lead you to discouragement. We also said we need a balanced diet, and the point was really that we shouldn't ask God to care for our bodies while we eat things that he did not intend to produce health in our bodies. God created the world in a certain way, and we should live in line with it. And then lastly, in regards to the Z's, or getting sleep, we looked at Psalm 127, verse 2, that states, It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Yes, there are times to work hard. Yes, there are times to get up early or even to stay up late. But in all of that, we do it knowing God is in control. It's not our rising early. It's not going to bed late that's going to make these things happen. It's God, and so we can go to bed confidently knowing success is in God's hand. And we went into all that because sometimes Christians have wrongly acted or even sometimes wrongly said that depression or sadness is sin. That yes, you should be sad at a funeral, but really you should always be full of the joy of the Lord. And yet we've seen that being sorrowful is not sinful. And sometimes we are sorrowful because of our bodies. And so we need to care for ourselves in that way. We even see that here in 1 Kings 19, because what did God do first with Elijah? Well, we see it in verses 5 through 8. God gave him food. 
He gave him drink, and he gave him rest. But God did not stop there. He then led Elijah to renew his mind and revive his spirit. And so that's where we turn today. The next two things, renewing the mind and reviving the spirit. So after reviving, or sorry, after caring for Elijah physically, God speaks to Elijah in a whisper. Now we looked at this passage in quite a bit of detail a few weeks ago, so I'm going to give more of a bird's eye view. But this all began in verse 9 where God asked him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing at this cave? And then Elijah replied saying, look, I've been jealous for you, God. Look, everyone else has forsaken you. They've torn down your covenants, your altars, but I, I'm the only one who's still here. And they seek to take my life. And the problem Elijah has is he considered that his plans for how God should work became more important to him than how God did work. And because God didn't bring revival through Mount Carmel, and because Jezebel still wants to take his life, he is in despair. And so now, God knowing, though of course God knows all things, but having made known to everyone Elijah's despair, he gets to the root, the cause, the solution. And so what does he do? He comes in the sound of a whisper. And then after the whisper, I'm sorry, before that he passed by with wind, earthquake, and fire, though he caused them, he was not in them. And then the whisper, and then God asks the question all over. And Elijah gives the same response. Well, what's going on? Why does God do this? Well, it's getting to the heart of Elijah's expectation that God must work how Elijah thinks, when Elijah thinks, and in the way Elijah thinks. I say this because in the past, God had worked through fire. God had worked through the quaking of the earth. He had worked through the wind. Because at the same mountain, Mount Horeb was where the Ten Commandments were given. And when they came, there was the quaking of the ground. There was smoke, all these things. And so Elijah expects God, you acted like this. You must act like this again. And yet now, God speaks in a whisper. What do you say when someone whispers? We often say, speak up. I can't hear you. We may even tell our children, you want respect? You need to speak with confidence. Speak clearly. Don't be mumbling under your breath. People who whisper, they're they're not very impressive. They're not relevant. And yet God is letting Elijah know, yes, he comes through the dramatic earthquake, wind and fire, but he also comes through the small mustard seed, the whisper. And so Elijah needs to take heart that God is working just not in the way that Elijah expected. But remember the larger context. Elijah is in despair, and what is God doing? He's renewing Elijah's mind. He's giving him new hope and joy, not in some mysterious way, but by teaching him, by engaging his mind. And so God continues to restore Elijah by informing him, but now we see in verses 16 and on, by letting him know that others, too, are serving God. Elijah, you're not alone. And so he anoints Elijah to then go anoint others. First, he's to anoint Haziel, king over Syria. Now, this one would have been a shock because Haziel was not a believer in Yahweh. He didn't believe in God. And yet, he, God was showing Elijah, I can work through anyone. Not just through you. Not just through your plans. Second, he's going to anoint Jehu, king over Israel, and then Elisha to be prophet in his place. Not only that, but verse 18 shows us that there are still 7,000 others who are serving the Lord. 
In other words, Elijah, you're not alone. Others are still faithful. And so he's calling him to trust the one who controls it all. Now that was a very fast tour of what we looked at in much detail a few weeks ago. But notice the big picture. God cares for Elijah's body. And then he also cares for his mind. God gave Elijah a renewed understanding of himself. You know, God didn't just send positive vibes to Elijah. He didn't just have Elijah speak some positive truths over his life. God worked by renewing in his mind who he is. And this is the way God always works. God works through our minds. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The word transformed in Greek is the word metamorphuste. And you could probably hear in there the word metamorphosis. And you learn what metamorphosis is early on in your science classes. That's what happens when a caterpillar changes into a butterfly. The slow change from something that we like to squash to something we go, it's beautiful. Look at it. And God is doing that same slow change from something ugly that we are, transforming us into something beautiful. But the key thing is, how does he do that? Not some mystical experience. Not getting some comfort. What you need is your mind to be renewed. Contrary to the way many people think, you don't grow by emptying your mind and then just sitting there. You grow by filling your mind with God's word. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 119.92, If your law, meaning your word, had, been not, had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. He's saying, look, in my sorrow, if I hadn't known your word, I would have been gone, but my mind was grasping onto it. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Store up the word of God like a squirrel storing up nuts for the winter. For the winter time of life will surely come when you will need God's promises to act as an anchor for your soul. Yet while we should fill our minds with God's word to anchor our soul, let me give two other things we often fill our minds with, and then we wonder, why am I so discouraged? First, many people constantly, at least in our country, are giving themselves to the reading and hearing of political news. Now, most political news is not a calm, balanced, thoughtful analysis of the issues at hand. Rather, somehow, each and every day, multiple times throughout the day, they're able to tell you that if the Republicans or the Democrats, whoever you like or don't like, aren't stopped, they're going to rob you and your children of everything precious in life. Every issue is an issue worthy of anxiety and despair, and every day there's a new rant of those stupid things that those people have done. Now, friends, I'm not telling you to bury your head in the sand. I'm not saying that there are some issues that are life and death and aren't important. There are those things. Yet I'm just warning you that if you're constantly feeding yourselves news worthy of anxiety and despair, well, guess what? You're going to be anxious and you're going to despair. That's the exact thing they're trying to get you to do. And why? Those people want money. How do they get money? By you paying attention. And what gets you to be, pay attention? Fear anxiety, hate. And so they're going to say what they can get you to go, ah, and then you want to listen to more. And then as they get more listeners, they get more ad money. 
So be wise. Don't bury your head in the sand, but be cautious about what you're constantly, that's the emphasis, filling your mind with. Second thing we often do that hurts us is we constantly give ourselves to social media. And especially the younger we are with distressing results. Gene Twinge is a psychologist at San Diego State University. Sadly, Katie's not here to give a cheer for those Aztecs. But nonetheless, Gene Twinge writes, It's not an exaggeration to describe the generation from teens to the early 20s, iGen, as being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. Much of this deterioration can be traced to their phones. The more times teens spend looking on screens, the more likely they are to report symptoms of depression. For boys, depressive symptoms have risen 21%, and among girls, they've risen 50%. The rates of suicide for this age group have both increased too. Male suicides have doubled, and female suicides have increased threefold. Now, just like the news, the issue is not the phones. Those in and of themselves are somewhat neutral. It's rather how they are consumed and the way they distort reality. And with our phones, specifically social media, they distort reality in three ways. First, it often focuses on what does not matter. You know, the in-style outfit within two years is going to be old-fashioned. The phone you craved is obsolete. In contrast, what God says matters has not changed one bit. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. That was true 2,500 years ago, and it'll be true 2,500 years from today. What outfit is popular, what you need to do to be cool will have changed. And yet when we're fixated on what everyone else is doing and going, oh, my life's horrible because I don't get to do that, we're missing out on what is really important. Second, social media makes the wrong person the judge. You know, there's a twinge of excitement when someone likes the picture or the comment. There's a small sense of despair when it's been 30 minutes and no one has said anything about the picture or the comment. And all of that is showing our deeper issue that we are concerned more about what other people say about us than what God has to say about us. Third, social media often presents an unrealistic picture of normal. Most teens take about 50 selfies and then they post the very best one. They don't post pictures when they just woke up or the boring day where they sit around with nothing to do. And yet, what do we do? We go to social media often when we're bored or distracted or maybe a little depressed, and then we go, oh, they always look perfect. Oh, there they are. They're having fun again. And what am I doing? Sitting here, nothing, with my lame family again. And we're not seeing reality. They're showing their best. And when do you often post things? When it's the best of your life. It's not reality. And so, again, my point is not that the news is horrible or social media is horrible and you must get off and throw away your phones. I'm not saying that at all. But if you're constantly filling your mind with these things and then you're going, man, why am I so discouraged? And you're not filling yourself with God's word. Well, there you have the solution. Yes, engage in the news. Yes, be on social media. But fill your mind and saturate your mind with God's word and then enjoy those other things 
in the proper perspective. Now, before we move on, we need to briefly discuss the way our society discusses the issue of dealing with depression and filter even that through God's word. We've been discussing renewing our mind, and our culture talks a lot about mental health. I was a little surprised to learn that Mental Health Month began back in 1949, but for the last few years, the promotion seemed to be becoming more and more prominent. Mental health was especially thrown in the spotlight this summer as the famous gymnast Simone Biles chose to not compete in a few events due to having mental health issues, or so she said. In regards to depression, the National Alliance of Mental Health, I'll just call it NAM, says that depression is to be treated with two things, both psychotherapy and medication. So let's examine those. What's psychotherapy? Well, they tell us. They describe it as talk therapy. Basically, what you do is you get a therapist and they replace unhelpful thinking with helpful thinking. In other words, it's what the Bible says. You need to renew your mind. Now, we may disagree about some of the things that they say are helpful or unhelpful, but nonetheless, they've reached the conclusion that the Bible gave us more than 2,000 years ago that to grow, you need to renew your mind. Nothing new. But they also say you need psychotherapy and you need medication. Well, what should we think about antidepressant medication? Well, as a culture, we now spend over $10 billion a year on it, and somewhere between 10 to 16% of American adults take antidepressant medicine, which is almost double what it was in the late 90s. Thus, they're widely used and accepted. But are they good, bad, or are they just indifferent? Well, let's examine three things. Well, how do they work? How are they prescribed? And do they work? Well, first, and I looked this up. I, I do not know these things. But I looked up. There's seven major different types of categories of antidepressant medications. And then within those, there's various medications you can get. But for each one, NAM says antidepressants often take two to four weeks to begin having an effect and up to 12 weeks to reach full effect. Most people will have to try various doses or medications to find what works for them. And we'll go back to that in a minute. But second of all, how do you get antidepressant medication? Well, you can't just go to Walgreens and ask for some. You have to get a diagnosis from a medical doctor or a psychologist. And if they do the diagnosis correctly, at least for a major depressive episode, you should have at least five of these following nine criteria. First, you have, must have long periods of time in which you've been having this. At least five of these nine you must have. You must have had diminished interest in activity or pleasure for most of the day. You must have had significant weight loss, insomnia, psychomotor agitation, fatigue and loss of energy, daily feelings of worthlessness or inappropriate guilt, diminished ability to think or concentrate, and recurring thoughts of death. So you don't need all nine of those, but if you get five, then your doctor, medical doctor, or psychologist will then say, here you need some antidepressant medication. And all that should have occurred for more than two weeks and not within two months of a bereavement or major loss. Now, as I read those, I at least think, oh, those are pretty good criteria. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But did you notice how they're different from almost anything else you'd get from your medical doctor? What's the normal way you go to the medical doctor and get medication? You go and you tell them what's going on and then what happens? They then say, well, let's run some tests. 
Let's get some blood work drawn. Let's get an x-ray. Let's get an MRI. Let's get a swab and we'll take it to the lab. And then from that, we'll determine what you have and what should be done because of that. Yet when it comes to mental health, your doctor just listens and then prescribes something, which even as they say, most people will have to try various doses or medications, what works for them. And with time, perhaps they'll be able to give but maybe the medical community will be able to be clear, well, your body should have this type of dopamine or serotonin or whatever and give us better prescriptions. But for right now, they are admitting they're somewhat using a sledgehammer to get a weed. We just take this big thing and we hope we hit it, but we're not real sure, so we're going to have to try several things out. So third, we need to ask, do antidepressants work? Well, some, especially those with Medium to extreme levels of depression are often helped. And for that, we should give thanks. And when it comes to milder cases, some studies have shown that almost 75% of people who are helped by medication were also helped if they had a placebo or a sugar pill instead. Now again, that's 25% are being helped, and we should be giving thanks for that. But as well, they say this works along with psychotherapy. So to be clear, no one, not even the mental health world, no one is saying antidepressants will get rid of your depression. They are saying you need this and these other things. That's not just your pastor who's, and I'm not anti-medicine. It's the mental health inst institutions are saying you may use this and you also need people to talk with you. Medication alone will not save you from depression and despair. So to summarize, let me be clear. I am not saying, just to be clear, I am not saying there's never a need for medication or that you're sinning if you're taking it. There are benefits to some psychiatric drugs, and it's not necessarily a lack of faith to take medication for a medical problem. If you have cancer, you should take chemotherapy. If you have a chemical imbalance, you should take chemicals to get that balance back to normal. Yet, you should ask your doctor good questions before you start taking them. A good question would be, how did you determine that I should use these drugs? What tests did you do and what will you run to help me know how much I should take and whether I should continue taking them? What is your goal for me in taking them? Or in other words, how long do you think I should keep taking them? Big important one, what are the side effects of taking them? In my personal opinion, the majority of cases, antidepressants have a role of helping in the way that crutches have a role of helping people who've been hurt and can't walk. They alone are not going to cause you to get better, but they might be a tool that allows you to recover quickly. But let's continue that analogy. If you have such a bad injury that you hurt your spinal cord and no one thinks you can walk and years later you're able to get across the room with crutches, well, I would give thanks. But hopefully no one would go, they've fully recovered. Look at them. Go across the room. We'd say, it's great, but they're still using crutches. In the new heavens and the new earth, when Christ returns, no one will be on antidepressants. They might be a good crutch for now, but they are not the Savior. There is one who will one day make it so all you need is Him. So again, I'm not saying they're sinful, but I am saying you should be thoughtful. You should be careful. And more than that, 
I want to revive into the conversation the very word they use, psychotherapy. Now, the root word psych, from which we get psychotherapy or psychology, it comes from the word soul, or we sometimes say spirit. Yet the very thing they're about, soul therapy or psychology, the study of the soul, is the very thing they don't talk about. It's like me being a shoe store and not selling shoes. I say this because while psychology to stay states, a persuasive body of research finds that religious belief and participation can help people cope with stress, reap significant benefits from social support, increases optimism and resilience, and decreases the risk of depression, substance abuse, suicide, and risky behaviors, you will then look in vain to find anything about it on their website. Now, wouldn't you think that the people who just say, look, all these studies have shown this does all this good would want to talk about it? And yet, you can search in vain. I looked 576 different topics. You will find zero mention of God. 576 topics. No mention of your spirit. Well, that's kind of weird for psychology, the study of the soul. And you can Google on their page soul and you won't even find it. You can find a category for President Trump and how he's influenced people psychologically, but you can't find God. You can't find your spirit. You can't find repentance. You can't find sin. You can browse 14 topics on the self, self-concept, self-control, self-deception, self-esteem, self-harm, self-hatred, self-help, self-image, self-injury, self-reinvention, self-sabotage, self-serving bias, self-talk, self-worth. You can learn a lot about yourself, but what do we need to have hope in the midst of life? For me, it's not going to be turning in. It's going to be turning up. And my point here is not that psychology is anti-God or sinful in any way. There's been wonderful Christians in it. There are wonderful Christians in it, and there will be. Rather, my beef is that psychology, the study of the soul, doesn't talk about the soul. They have the most important topic, and they won't talk about what they're supposed to be talking about it. John Piper wrote, People are starving for the greatness of God. But most of them would not give this diagnosis of their troubled lives. The majesty of God is an unknown cure. There are far more popular prescriptions on the market, but the benefit of any other remedy is brief and shallow. The hidden cry of the soul is, God, show me thy glory. So yes, while all these other things matter, let's get to the most important thing, the thing that really brings hope in life. And that's why we have our third category, reviving the spirit. One, reviving it into the conversation. Let's get this back in our nation and saying, look, if you want hope, you need to talk about God, but also reviving it in what we know about God. And we're going to end by talking of three things that we must talk about, and that is God forgives and restores. God loves and God gives purpose. The first thing to know God and revive your spirit is you must know that God forgives and restores. Now, I think a good pastor will say you should talk to your doctor before you change or stop any medication. Yet I doubt many psychiatrists or doctors are saying, look, I'm not a pastor. I can help with some symptoms of depression but one day you're going to have to stand before God and I can't really help you with that. And yet we all will stand before God. And what are you going to say as to why he should forgive you? 
You know, that really gets to the heart of it. To say we need forgiveness is to admit we're broken. We're sinful. Not just that we've done bad things, like, yeah, I lied, or I cheated, or I stole, but I am a sinner, and because I'm a rebel against God, a sinner, that leads me to lie, cheat, and steal. You know, the problem is not just what we've done, though that's the problem, it's who we are. Yet there's good news, for as Tim Keller says, we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. Yet, we are also more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Now, how did God respond to Elijah? When Elijah fled from the ministry and Elijah asked God to take his life, God didn't say, I knew it. Never should have trusted you. Well, you're done. I'm, I'm sick of you, Elijah. Don't ever come talk to me again. No, God cared for Elijah. He provided for him. He restored him. He brought him back not to new life, but to ministry. We see that in verse 15. He goes and sends him on more missions. God forgives. And some people, many people, are in a dark place. They're in depression because they don't know God's forgiveness. You see, we think we've screwed up one too many times. We've lived a life that's gone too far from God. We're done something so horrible, we're beyond forgiveness. Yet God gives us stories of prodigal sons and prodigal prophets because he desires all the prodigals to come home. Psalm 103, 11 and 12 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You can start out today and start walking east and at some point hit Denton and then maybe McKinney and keep going east. And you can walk and then you need a boat at some point. But keep going east and you know what? You'll never stop going east and begin to go west. You'll always go east. And God says if you turn from your sins and trust in Christ, that's how far God has removed your sins from you. They are not ever going to come to you again as far as the east is from the west. And yet, how could God forgive Elijah when he ran from him? How could he restore to ministry the very one who tried to flee from it? Because God is love. And that's the second truth we must know to revive the Spirit. 1 John 4.10 tells us, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, God's love is not acceptance of any and all, but rather taking the payment for any and all. God's love takes us where we are, but then calls us to a life that obeys Him. In John 8, there's the well-known story of the religious leaders who bring a woman caught in adultery to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, what should we do with this woman? Well, Jesus then stoops down and he says, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. And a lot of people love to quote that first part of the story. See, look, Jesus just accepts everyone. We're not going to cast any stones, no condemnation. And yet once everyone leaves, Jesus tells the woman, neither do I condemn you. But then he also says, go and sin no more. You see, Jesus didn't condemn at first, but neither did he say, 
I'm fine with your lifestyle. You see, Jesus was the only one who could condemn. And yet, rather than giving condemnation, he welcomed her. And then he also called her to live a changed life. God does not just accept us and overlook our shortcomings. He accepts us in spite of our shortcomings. His love expresses himself in taking the punishment we deserve and then pouring that punishment on his son. That's why 1 John 4.10 said, In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Yes, you don't need to clean your life up first. Yes, Jesus will take you just as you are, but the good news is he won't leave you just where you are. He will change you and mold you and renew you. And yet as we know God's love, we also learn God's wrath because Jesus was the propitiation. That means the sacrifice that removes the wrath. Jesus took the punishment we deserve so that we might only know God's love. God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Thus, the only reason Jesus says to the woman, neither do I condemn you, is because he knew he was going to go take her condemnation for her and then change her because she is made new. Well, not only does God's love lead to forgiveness, but it also leads to our security. For Romans 8, 38-39 says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, one of the tragedies of a life in a sin-cursed world is death. We lose loved ones. We lose relationships now, and we lose people when they die. And yet, if you trust in Christ, You will never lose the most important love you can ever have. Death will never separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And thus to revive our spirits, we need to know that there is forgiveness. We need to know that God loves us. And we also need to know that God gives us purpose. When Jesus is asked, what was the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment? He said to love God with your all. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This God made you for a purpose. That is to live a life that reflects Him, that honors Him, that loves Him. You see, you're not just a more highly evolved species. You're not just random matter existing on a sphere, floating out in some massive, purposeless cosmos. You were made by God in His image. And as you live in relation to Him, there is meaning and purpose. Not meaning and purpose that we hope is true, or boy, this sure would be nice is true, but that we can have confidence we know is true. And as you live for God, it makes life meaningful and purposeful. That's one of the greatest senses of despair is we wonder, is anything I'm doing really matter? You work and work and the pile just seems to grow. You labor and toil, but things seem to be getting worse. You sacrifice and serve, and no one seems to care. Yet lift your gaze and see that God does care, and nothing that goes and that is done for Him goes unnoticed. 
you know, our despair in life, our seeming hopeless in it all, that it is hopeless, is seen well in the story of three masons working on a cathedral, medieval, sorry, cathedral. The cathedrals, as you know, took decades to build. So long that often the architect and then many times the builders didn't even get to see the completion. And you could imagine their futility of, I'm going to spend my whole life and never even see this project done. Well, one day a man came up to three masons who were working and said, what are y'all doing? And the first one said, I'm wasting my time. I've worked all day and seemingly made no progress. The man was living in futility. Little progress, little hope. The second man replied, well, I'm finishing the upper edge of the stone. I finished the lower edge and hope to have it ready for placement in a few weeks. And that man could see some value to his work as he looked to the future. But the third one said, I'm building a mighty cathedral to the glory of God. You know, the third man could see past the immediate, see past the mundane, see past, you know, nothing's changing that much to see that one day this would bring glory to God. And his life then had purpose even in the most menial of tasks. You may seem trapped in endless diapers or dishes or doldrums or deadlines. And yet while it, appears, it may appear meaningless, there's a grand design from the designer for each and every task assigned to you. Thus lift your gaze and know that each diaper, each dish, each day, each deadline can be turned into a rich opportunity to serve the living God. He sees, He rewards, and He cares. So yes, in this life, it can be very dark at times. And yet the Psalms tell us, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. And our Savior said, Friends, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Well, Lord, you are our hope. You have overcome. You have conquered. And so life is not meaningless. And you came to overcome our sin and the penalty we deserve. And so we thank you for the forgiveness and love that that gives us. Oh, Lord, may we leave casting our cares on you, knowing that you care for us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.